Today we're going to be talking about how Christians should act like Christians. Think about that. Christians should act like Christians. Not very controversial. I think I could get most people to, to say, yeah, that, that, that's a good idea if Christians would act Christianly, if they would honor Christ with their lives. Sadly, it doesn't always happen, but it's not controversial. We should honor Christ with our lives if we say we belong to him by faith. Now, the problem is it's a little controversial when it comes to how do we do this? How do we go about this? Is there a biblical way to try to get Christians to act like Christians? And the answer is there is, but sometimes we forget about it. Or sometimes we don't even know about it. Or sometimes we think, oh, that can't ever work. We'll do something else. Which brings us to the fourth chapter of the book we call Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can find the fourth chapter of Ephesians. It's a letter originally. We've done the 40-some weeks in Ephesians on more than one occasion. Since I've been at Omaha Bible Church, we're not doing that version. We're doing the big picture version, a chapter a week. And so we're going to do chapter 4 today, chapter 5 next week. Lord willing, we'll do chapter 6 the next week. And then, Lord willing, we'll return to our study of the life and ministry of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. We'll be in chapter 24. So that's kind of where things are headed We're going to do 32 verses of chapter 4 today, and so you might pray for me. It will be an exercise in editing, not the text of Scripture. I'll do my very best to read every single word, but to edit comments, because there's so much going on that's so wonderful and amazing, it's really hard to keep things moving. But just so you know where we're going, what it's all about, it's a call to Christian behavior. It's a call to get Christians to act like Christians. And I'll let you know right now, it comes after the first three chapters of teaching us what it means to be a Christian. And that is vital, 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 vital. Too many times we try to get Christians to act like Christians just because. Because we say so, because it seems like the right thing to do. And it's separated or divorced or distinguished from one, two, and three. Uh, We pretend like chapter four is chapter one. We pretend like there is no chapter 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and Omaha Bible Church is committed to doing ministry, not pretending that that's the case. Okay? Ready to go? We won't get very far, but uh, at least at first. Let's jump into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I, therefore, so I, an apostle of Christ Jesus, so he's speaking with the authority of none other, none other than Christ, I, therefore... And every good Bible student knows you want to ask this question, what's the therefore, therefore, right? I, in light of who Christ is, in light of what he's done for you, in light of who you were apart from Christ, in light of these first three grandiose, magnificent, super important gospel chapters, there are implications, okay? You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, but it's not meant to stay alone, It's not, now do whatever you want to do. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. I love that little tip to the sovereignty of God. He's imprisoned, Roman imprisonment, uh, but he's not. I, therefore, a prisoner of Rome, which would be true and which would not be good. And it could be a good excuse to behave badly because circumstances are badly. And you know what? Since my life is going poorly, I'll just live however I want to live. No, I, he says, a prisoner for the Lord. 
So that's perspective on the sovereignty of God. And so he's going to do the right thing and call the Ephesians to do the right thing. From that vantage point, I urge you to walk. This is a metaphor borrowed from chapter 2 where we used to walk in a bad way led around by Satan. Okay, We used to behave badly. I urge you to walk in a, notice what he says, manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So this is no small first verse, right? You were called by the power of the Spirit, chapter 1, chapter 2. You were called, you were, you were made alive together with Him, regeneration. It's ama- you've, been, you've been attached to Christ, you've been given eternal life. This is an amazing calling from God, chapter 1. It's a, it's a predestined call. I mean, this it doesn't get more grand than chapters 1 to 3, that great, awesome, majestic calling to be a Christian. But now what? What's he saying? Now I want you to live. Now I want you to conduct yourself, to walk, and he's going to be all-inclusive. We'll get there. This walking, this behavior includes the way you think. It includes the way you talk. It includes all of our actions, thoughts, hearts, desires. Now be different. Be different. Have it be worthy. Have it be complementary. Have it match. Let's not say, you know what, I've been saved by the blood. Let's not say grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and now I can live like the devil. Because you know what, grace, no, in light of all of those great truths, now let's live in light of those great truths. And he's going to give us command after command after command after command. And if you're interested in categories, which I think all Christians should be, in thinking through things... To oversimplify, but to simplify, chapters 1 to 3 have been gospel. The good news about redemption in Christ, and it has nothing to do with your efforts. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, again, I'm generalizing, but this would be true. 4, 5, and 6 are, are commands. There's another word for commands. It starts with an L. It's what? It's law. It's law. So we have gospel, and now that we're Christians, we're not committed anti-law people. It's not whatever goes, goes. No, we want to do the right thing. We want to obey God, not for our salvation, but because we have salvation given to us freely in Christ. Now, since you answered my question correctly, we might even back up further and say, first we have, in chapter two, there's a sense in which we have law because we're supposed to do the right thing and we don't. So we have the gospel, right? So God commands us to do the right thing. We don't do it. So God, God gives us law. We see that we can't do it. We need a savior. That's what I said, one, two, and three. Savior, gospel, good news. But we're not saved for lawlessness. To use a fancy theological label, we're not. Christians aren't to be antinomians, anti-namas, anti-law. We're actually to be law followers. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. Remember, this is chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We all know that. But verse 10 Oh, we're supposed to live a certain way. Today is going to be live a certain way. Live a certain way. And so let's keep going. Even though we've, we've really captured the, the whole gist in one sense, we could close in prayer uh, after verse 1. You get the idea. Well, verse 2 says, let's, let's focus in. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, if that were describing a person, 
Who could that, in verse 2, perfectly describe? It's a giant hint, right? I have a visual aid today behind me. I always do, right? Jesus Christ, perfectly patient. Jesus Christ, perfectly humble, Philippians 2. Perfectly gentle, perfectly loving. That's not good news to us. But since He's for us as our Savior representative and we have the good news of salvation in Him, that's good guidance, right? We want to be imitators of Christ, in other words. We don't imitate, take Christ to gain salvation or we could never do it. But because He's, he's our champion Savior, He's gained it for us. Now we want to imitate Christ, knowing full well that we're not held to do it perfectly in order to gain eternal life. He's secured it for us. Walk, imitate, do the right thing. That's what this looks like. We're pursuing these things. Then he says in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's kind of a preview of what he's going to get into because he's going to start stressing unity and peace because we're, when we're saved from our sins, we're not saved to live as individuals only. We are saved individually. It is true. We have individual responsibilities. It is true. He'll cover that. But we're saved to be part of, rescued to be part of a community together. It's called the body of Christ. It's called the church. And if we are walking in a manner worthy of our calling, if we're imitating Christ fittingly in light of the gospel, guess what can happen? I can get along with you and you can get along with me because while we have a lot of differences and we come from a lot of different places, we have a common Savior, we have a common God, we have a common redemption, common Holy Spirit, and this is extraordinary. The world around us tries to get us to get together and be unified in a lot of things and it fails time and time again. But there is one thing that we as Christians should be united in. We have, we have the same God, the same Savior, same salvation. Well, let's just read it instead of hearing me talk about it. Here, verse 4. There is one body, one spiritual entity is the idea, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope view of the future because of resurrection that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So it's inclusive. Everybody who's a believer, this is true of, of all, who is over all, so he's sovereign over all, and through all, and in all, so that you, can't, you can't escape him. So he's purposely being uh, leaving no stone unturned. It's the one true God over all, in all, through all. I mean, he's covering all of his bases. And so the interesting thing is, the church at Ephesus, and remember this is a circular letter, some old manuscripts don't even have the word at Ephesus. Some of the older ones don't. It's just blank. Because it's designed to make the rounds in the region. To go to the church of Colossae. To go to the church um, of Laodicea. To go to the church of Philippi. Church of Ephesus. Eventually after 2,000 years it comes to Omaha Bible Church. This is true of all Christians. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One Savior. One God who's sovereign in over all things. So if that's true byproduct in a local church like like Ephesus or ours, we can get along. We can get along amidst all of the differences. As we, like in Philippians chapter 1, stand firm with one mind, right? One gospel mindset, striving together 
one spirit for the furtherance of the gospel. Yeah, but what about all of our differences? Yeah, what about them? We have them. But this is what unites us. So it's, it's a really good church letter as well. Not only a great letter to learn about who we are as individuals in Christ, one, two, and three, but there are implications for the gathered community, the fellowship. This is actually the key to getting along as well. I love it. Hope you love it too. If you do, you came to the right place. If you don't, I, I hope you still came to the right place. I hope it wears off. Okay, let's keep going. Something about individuals now, if we keep moving in verse seven, but grace was given to each one. So there is an individual aspect, as I said. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So amidst the unity, amidst the unity, we have diversity. Verse 8 then says, therefore it says. And this is, this is fascinating. When he, he Jesus, ascended, going up, on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What is that about? Maybe not so easy to figure out where we sit in the 21st century in middle America, but that's verbiage taken right out of the ancient world when you would have a king conquering enemies. And when the king conquers enemies and there's victory, the king is then lifted up. The king ascends and goes, goes and gets up on a throne because he's the high one. He's the powerful one. He's the victorious one. And he also shares the, what we might call in more recent days, but still old, the spoils of victory. That's what, that's what's going, that's the imagery that he's using here. Um, if that, if that, is unpleasant to you. I'm sorry, not sorry. Um, Jesus Christ is the victor, right? He, he conquers the one we were enslaved to in chapter two, the devil. He conquers death. He brings freedom to us. And when he brings freedom to us, he gives us things, right? The, the spoils of war, if you will, the spoils of victory. He gives gifts to men. He led a host of captives. In the ancient world, sometimes you would have the captives following the victors, on display for everybody to know who the winners and who the losers are. That's the image. And Satan is the big loser and all of his minions and all of his followers put on display for everybody to see, but there's gifts given. This is fascinating. Because he's going to get the spiritual gifts to the church. But ascension is quite interesting. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. We could get into the controversy what that's meaning, but I take it that it means the one who ascended as the victor is the same one who descended from where he ascended to, heaven, and he came to earth. Remember we just talked about the humility of Christ or the humility that we're to follow. He humbled himself. He came to earth. He descended. This tells us something about the fact that Jesus, Jesus didn't get his origin in Bethlehem. Jesus didn't get his origin from Mary unless we want to talk about the incarnation. Okay, you, we understand that. But the same one who ascended high above all rule and authority is the one who descended and came here for us. Descended into the lower regions of the earth. It says in verse 10, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So all the heavens, 
fill or bring to completion or maturity all things. The, the idea is he is the one who is the ascended one, the sovereign one, the authoritative one. And so he, if he wants to bring completion or maturity, because that's where he's going with this, he can do it and he can do it his way. And that's where we're headed in all of this. Just one interesting theological note about this. This is all an interesting theological note for that matter. In theology, sometimes we talk about the session of Christ. And what we mean is the seating of Christ. Ascension. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's the session of Christ. Now, I don't have a very good memory, but I remember in chapter 2 something about the session of Christ, something about the seating of Christ that you're going to want to know about. Chapter 2, verse 6. Raised us up. The, the one who's ascended high above the highest of the highest places, the best of the best places, the victorious one. It says in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated, sessioned us, if you will, seated us with him in the heavenly places, the highest places in Christ Jesus. This is fantastic. This is, this, this is fabulous. This is extraordinary. So if we can just remember what we learned in chapter two, and now we're talking about the one who is the most exalted, victorious one, the victor with enemies coming behind because they're defeated foes. But you need to know, and I need to know that we're actually seated there with him. Now, I don't know about you, but those chairs aren't that comfortable. <laughs> it doesn't seem like I'm seated there with him. Uh, I know enough of you well enough to know that I don't think you're seated there with him either. Unless we mean it in the careful sense, it is a spiritual reality. As absolutely sure as he bodily ascended and is seated, his session, ruling and reigning, it's king description. You're there too. In the, I'll do this, already not yet since. Like Romans 8, just like you're glorified, but you aren't, aren't glorified yet. But because union with Christ is something that cannot be undone, he can speak of it in those terms in chapter 2, verse 6. It, it's good stuff. You can't make this stuff up. I think we should take like three offerings today. Because the sermon's not that good, but the truth is really that good. Now, I'm just kidding. We didn't even have an offering. So when we need to be motivated to do the right thing, when we want Christians to act Christianly, what we need to do is continually remember what it means to be united to Christ. The one we're seated with is the one who is victorious, seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, I'm motivated to act like a good citizen of heaven in the here and now. Regardless of what happens to me in the here and now, I want to do the right thing because of who I am in Christ. That's the idea. That's the idea. Okay, we should keep going to verse 11. And he gave the apostles. So as he ascended, he's giving gifts, just like a victorious king would. He gave, he gave these gifts 
the apostles, the prophets. We learned about them in chapter 2, verse 20. So we don't really need them anymore other than their writings that we have in Scripture because they're the foundation. Then we have the evangelists, those who preach the gospel, the shepherds or pastors, same word, and teachers. So he gave those, and we're going to see he gave those to the church. So as he's, as he's ascending, he's giving gifts, and he gives those gifted individuals to the church. Why? Verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, building up the spiritual entity, building up the church to bring it to maturity. Then it says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Notice it's not faith, it's not subjective, it's objective, the faith, as in the truth, as in the gospel. He's going to use a synonym if we keep reading, and of the knowledge. Okay, so it's 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 not the my truth kind of thing or your truth kind of thing, your knowledge, my knowledge, your faith, my faith. It's the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what's happening? What's happening is we want to grow spiritually. We're going to get into that. We want to mature. We don't want to stay immature, which means doing the right things as Christians. How do we do this? Well, I could have a good idea. You could have a good idea. Somebody else could have a good idea. But you know, the one who ascended had a good idea. The one who has all the power, all the wisdom, all the might, the one who humbled himself as he's ascending, he gives gifts to the church for the maturity of the church, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to bring about the mature, what does he say? Um, Mature manhood. Why does he say it that way? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for an adult who is no longer unwise, But in the best case scenario, a mature man knows how to make good decisions. They're not unstable. They're not easily misled. They've been around the block. You get the idea? Well, that's just a metaphor for how we're supposed to be. The church is to be mature. Christians who are part of the church are supposed to be mature. How do we do this? Well... Apostles and prophets lay the foundation. We have evangelists. We have pastors and teachers. And what's fascinating, as we're going to see, what do they do? They keep telling you about the knowledge of the Son of God. They keep telling you, how about this, chapters 1, 2, and 3. They keep telling you about how great it is to be in Christ. They keep telling you about how amazing it is to be saved. They keep telling you how amazing it is to be sealed by the Spirit. They keep telling you all these great gospel realities, the truth, the gospel, the knowledge. And what happens is, if we can understand those great realities, now we want to live the right way, we want to do the right thing. But it's not divorced from those things. It's directly connected to those things. So what you'll notice at Omaha Bible Church is, on our best days, we don't always have best days, the pastors just keep telling you about Jesus. It's like a religion or something. (laughs) They they, they keep evangelizing the lost, and they keep evangelizing the found. (laughs) 
What's the deal? Why does he keep talking to us about maybe one week it's going to be on the resurrection and the significance of Christ's resurrection? It's his justification. It's his vindication. And we're going to figure that out. We're going to talk about substitutionary atonement and figure that out. We're going to talk about the active obedience of Christ and his perfect life of righteousness and figure that out. We're going to talk about what it means to be in union with Christ and to receive Christ and all of his benefits and figure that out. We're going to talk about incarnation and his humanity and deity and try to figure that out and on and on and on and on it goes. It's chapter one verses or chapter one, two and three kind of stuff. Here's why. Because true spiritual maturity doesn't happen distinct from that. It's actually tied to that. We learn about this in Romans one. We learn about it in Romans 16. We grow spiritually even through the power of the gospel. And if this doesn't work, if this doesn't change your behavior, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, guess what? Nothing will. Nothing will. Oh, I guess we could do behavior modification that doesn't glorify Christ. But it's not Christian behavior modification. The key to living the right way, the right way. Knowledge, truth, gospel. And we're seeing it here. We're seeing it here. And I think the reason he's talked about the great ascension of Jesus above all, over all, this, this, he uses great words to, to, to describe it's matchless so that no one can rightly say, I think I've got a different way. No, this is, this is how you do it. Okay, let's keep, let's keep going. So knowledge of the Son of God, I just wrote in my margin where it says knowledge of the Son of God in verse 13. I just wrote in my margin. See chapters 1 to 3. That's where we got that. Okay, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. Remember the manhood metaphor. Mature, stable, makes good decisions on their best day. So that we may no longer be children. Another metaphor for immaturity, for gullibility. Um, and if you're a child, don't take too much offense. Jesus used the metaphor of you to say, to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. So children are an awesome metaphor because they don't contribute anything. They just come for salvation. So that's a great metaphor in that context. But in our context, it's not a good metaphor because children who stay immature aren't positive. They don't grow up. They're not mature. They're gullible. They're easily misled. He, I know that's what he's talking about. And you can see it right there in verse 14. Tossed to and fro by the waves. That's like a rudderless ship or someone. Uh, it's unstable. It's dangerous. It's unsettled. And carried about by every wind of doctrine, teaching, theology, instruction. Knowledge, yes, but not, not knowledge of the truth of the Son of God. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we have plan A for spiritual maturity. Let me, let me put it a different way. True spiritual maturity to bring about, whether we're talking about a building structure, because Paul uses that, or a, a, a mature adult, 
it happens through the knowledge of the Son of God. It happens through the gospel. It happens through knowing things like chapters 1, 2, and 3 and what's there. And what that does is it helps us to no longer be gullible. It helps us to no longer be easily misled by every fad, right? I like to say fadianity is what we have in evangelicalism. Sounds disgusting, doesn't it? But it seems like evangelicals of all people, I'll go on record as saying it, sadly, seem to be some of the most gullible people on earth. So, uh, there's a sucker born twice a day, somebody said. Well, it seems like they're born more than twice a day in evangelicalism. Look at the books that we buy. It seems like every Friday I get an advertisement in my email. I probably should uh, put it over to junk, but I get an email from um, the Christian book distributors. And, you know, you look at the top 10 books and you just think, oh my word, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And how much of it contradicts what we learn in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The knowledge of the faith regarding the Son of God. It's no wonder we're a bunch of adults walking around sucking our thumbs. It's no wonder we buy the Jesus junk. It's no wonder we buy all the garbage. Because we're so into the isms and the fads. It's embarrassing. It's crazy. Where were we? Christians should be stable, right? Christians should know the basic truths, right? Ask people, you know, who are professing Christians what the gospel is, as I like to say so many times, and you're going to hear some really weird things. Ask them about basic, basic baby Christian things, like what is justification? That's a basic baby Christian thing, because most of the letters that are written, in, and we have it in our canon recorded, were written to baby Christians. And you're going to hear all kinds of weird answers. These are just basic ABCs, 1, 2, 3s, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 sorts of things. The faith. If we can grasp the faith, we can be on our road to maturity, stability. And now we actually know why we want to talk the right way. He's going there. Why we want to do the right things. Why we want to avoid doing the wrong things. He's going there about your speech. He's going there about your sensuality. He's going there about your behavior, the way you treat other people. But his answer is the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God is actually the key. Chapter 5, we're going to get to chapter 5 and we're going to hear things like husbands love your wives. Most of the time when husbands don't love their wives, it's a theological problem. It may not only be a theological problem. But the whole thing was meant to be tied to if you really understood the depth of your sin and depravity, Mr. Husband, in chapter 2. And that God, based upon no goodness of your own, made you alive together with Christ. You could and would love your wife. It's that way of thinking. It's that way of thinking. Now, there are people who know a lot of theology and are jerks about it. But you can't walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called if you don't have the right knowledge, is what I'm saying. Okay. I, I have a list of isms here that get in the way. I won't go there that um, are characteristic of the fads that we chase that ought not have time in our Christian lives, but I won't, I won't get into those. Let's go to verse 15. It says in verse 15, rather, 
So not tossed to and fro, not unstable, rather speaking the truth. There we go again. Speaking the truth, the truth about Christ, one, two, and three, the faith, the knowledge, verse 13. So speaking the truth in love. Remember chapter one, verses four to five, we were predestined in love by God. So now we're imitating his love for us because we, we were loved when we were unlovely. So now we're speaking gospel truth to other people, even if they're unlovely. It has nothing to do with whether or not we're going to speak the truth. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. I just like that two word command. That'd be a good plaque. Buy that for your pastor on pastoral appreciation day. Grow up. Ephesians chapter four. <laughs> And I won't appreciate it, but you know what? If we could each buy ourselves a plaque, if we could do the one another's <laughs> via plaques, grow up. Now, it sounds negative, but in the context, it's actually positive. Grow up. In other words, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. Know who Christ is, what he's done for you, and then live in light of it. Live accordingly. Grow up. Grow up. This is good. This is positive. Grow up maturity. Don't stay like little children when you're not a little child anymore in every way into him who is the head of this spiritual entity into Christ, Messiah, Savior, from whom the whole body joined joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that's that's captivating, all the parts working together, bringing about maturity. So while there is an individual emphasis sometimes, it, we're not individuals only. Now we're body of Christ working together. He's going to go on to talk more about this, but maybe before we go on to talk more, well, let, let's keep going. How about, how about verse 17? He's going to remind us of bad memories so that we appreciate the present more. It says in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. Remember that's chapter one, verse one, or chapter four, verse one, the, the right kind of walking. So now no longer walk as the Gentiles, the godless do in the futility of their minds. Chapter two, verse one and following. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So he's writing to Christians saying, don't act like non-Christians. And you know what's true about non-Christians? Well, they have a heart problem that only God can solve. That's in our verse, verse 18. But also notice in relationship to the hardness of heart issue, there's ignorance, there's bad understanding, there's a negative effect on the mind. So the walk, the behavior is tied to mind, tied to understanding, tied to ignorance, and tied to heart. So I know it's true, and you can quote me a Bible verse that says knowledge puffs up. And that would be true. It can. But apart from knowledge, there is not maturity. And where there's wrong knowledge, there for sure is immaturity, and now we act like ungodly people. So if your life verse, it seems like evangelicalism's life verse is knowledge puffs up, keep reading the rest of the Bible. <laughs> okay? Without the knowledge of the Son of God, we're not actually going to grow spiritually. And maybe the, one of the reasons why we are so immature, and I don't mean you, of course, we, broadly speaking, are so immature is because we, we, we think Ephesians 4 is Ephesians 1. Or Ephesians 5 is Ephesians 1. Or Ephesians 6 is Ephesians 1. Pastor, just tell me how to live my life. And I want to say... Don't just do something. Stand there. 
It is true, don't just stand there or sit there, do something in a certain context, chapter 4. But the Christian behavior, the walk, comes first from standing or sitting there at the feet of Jesus, learning about what a great Savior He is, which then fuels the gratitude and moves us to behavior. This is exciting stuff. It's almost, it's almost like it's a secret or something. But, it, but if it's a secret, it's Satan's best kept secret. One reason why we're fumbling around so badly with our speech and with our passionate desires out of control for the wrong things is we don't regularly go back often enough and actually know who Christ is and what He's done for us. I promise you till my dying day, I will try my best to evangelize the lost and evangelize the found. Because it is how we are saved, but it is also how we are sanctified. Okay, where in the world? Oh, verse 19. They, the ungodly, the Gentiles. But he's addressing Christians because they're struggling with this. Uh, Maybe in one sense, this is too far, but I'm going to just push it a little bit. Could it be that the Apostle Paul's writing to a church who's behaving badly? If you read chapter 4, you come to that conclusion. At least some of them are really struggling with it. And you might say, so then why does he write chapters 1, 2, and 3 first? I hope you know the answer by now. I hope you know the answer by now. They have become callous. So typically calluses are on our hands so we don't feel pain. They're on our feet. Please don't share. Um, Calluses, they, they numb the senses. They've become callous, spiritually callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality. I'm going to suggest to you it's because they're Gentiles and they don't know the truth of chapters 1, 2, and 3, which leads to callousness spiritually which leads to then here in this case, giving ourselves up to sensuality. Sensuality is what? Typically, if it feels good, do it. So as you're struggling with stopping doing things that are sinful because it feels good, I think you have a knowledge of the Son of God problem before you have a different kind of problem. And I will do my best to impress you with the greatness of Christ and redemption in Him and what He saved you from and what He saved you unto. And then say, grow up. Grow up. Giving themselves to sensuality. That's what ungodly people do. We're Christians. We're united to the King who's ascended. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's contra-Christ honoring Contra Christian loving, contra Christian loving, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Notice it's in the, in the mind as well. It's not how you learn Christ, one, two, and three, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth, objective gospel truth is in Jesus. Would you please go back and go deeper to what we learned about at the beginning so you can curb your other problem? Then it says in verse 22, to put off your old self. So like a dirty garment, the image metaphor is to to put it off. That's not who you are in Christ. You don't belong to, to, you're not a child of wrath anymore. Verse 20 goes on to say, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. 
Verse 23, and to be renewed by the spirit of your minds. Uh, There it is again. It was futility of the mind in verse 17. And now we have the renewal in the spirit of our minds. Verses or chapters 1, 2, and 3. Verse 24, and to put on the new self. So we're putting off in verse 22. Now we're putting on in verse 24. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What's that mean? Righteousness is adherence to law. So here we have likeness of God in true righteousness. So now that we're in Christ, united, new creations, we're doing true righteousness, true law keeping, which is loving God and loving neighbor, right? Not for our justification, but because we have it. So now we're able to do this. We are called to do this. This is part of the new walk, true righteousness and holiness. You're you're different from the Gentiles. You're not just like the Gentiles. If you're acting just like the Gentiles, I want to say, grow up. But I'm not saying that to you in isolation. Grow up, and it has to do with renewing your mind. And it has to do with knowing things. Yeah, but I understand all that stuff. I prayed and asked Jesus into my heart when I was two, or three, or four, or five, or six, or 27, or 87. He's addressing Christians. Calling them to go back to understanding the great deep truths of Christ. Now, how about verse 25? We better get this moving. Therefore, having put away falsehood, which starts with wrong thinking about self and Savior, chapter 2. Let each one of you, notice it's individual now, so we have an individual obligation. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Something is happening here that I really want you to get. It was, maturity is going to happen because Christ gave gifts and so we have people like pastors telling you the truth, telling you the truth, telling you the truth. But now he actually goes broader. So it's not only my obligation and calling, now it's a universal obligation and calling. All Christians now are called to speak the truth. Each one of you to speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. So that's cool what's happening there. So as we're promoting new ministries today, for example, which we are, and, and saying, hey, you can go to this class and get further equipped, some, maybe by a pastor, but maybe you can go to a class and you can, or, or you can sign up and you can serve and you can be with other believers doing ministry because not only am I called to say, hey, grow up, or to speak the truth in love, here we have you too, maybe in a different setting, different kind of environment, you too are called to do the same thing. So this is part of being part of the body of Christ. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And what's that look like on a practical level? I don't know for sure because I think it looks a lot of different ways. I don't think it's anytime there's any, anybody having a problem, you just say, gospel, gospel, gospel. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. I think that would all be true. But there's a lot of different ways to talk to somebody about what it means to be in Christ and to try to help them have perspective to not act like a Gentile. There's a whole lot of different ways, which is why we say pray for wisdom. So as we're doing life together, if you will, in the local church, each one of us are called to speak the truth to one another. And I don't think the truth is meant to be taken, t- taken in isolation as in anything and everything that's an object of reality. 
The Apostle Paul tends to use these labels for the same thing. And it's that thing. The truth. The faith. The knowledge. And so we're going to address our Gentile-like behavior by helping people understand what it means to be united to Christ by faith. That's what we want to do. Okay, let's, let's move on. Wrap things up. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Great verse to take out of context, but I think it's an even better verse to keep in context. Amidst the turmoil, amidst the chaos, amidst the difficulty as a sinner living with other sinners, I can stop my anger quickly is the idea. I can have righteous anger, but I can put it to bed, if you will, before I go to bed because of the truth, because of the faith, because of the reality of Christ and the mercy he's shown to me. Let's keep going and give no opportunity for the devil, which would complement what we just saw. Let, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's not only stopping the bad behavior, it's lavishing on people because God's grace, as we learned earlier in Ephesians, has been lavished on us. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up growth of the body as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Pretty straightforward. Are Christians supposed to talk a certain way? Maybe I should put it in the negative. Are Christians supposed to avoid speaking certain ways? Yes. And if you talk like a Gentile, you know what I want to say to you? Grow up. Grow up. And if you think what I'm saying is legalistic, I'm not saying grow up for your salvation. That would be legalism. Grow up because of your salvation. You represent the king. That's not legalism. That's walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Our speech builds up. We're Christians. It reveals what's in the inside too, by the way, according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. By the way, am I, am I giving you law today or gospel? When I tell you what to do, is that law or gospel? That's law. But this is law not coming from the judge who will condemn you. This is law coming from the hand of the Savior who justified you. Okay? This is a different use of the law. Not for your salvation. You have it in Christ, the law keeper. But now that you're in Christ by faith, you're called to do the right thing. It's law. Law because you're saved. But make no mistake about it. It's law. If you've never trusted in Christ, I'd say you'd better do all of, you better talk perfectly all the time to get to heaven. And we know that you won't. But now that I'm a citizen of heaven, I want to talk the right way because I belong. And I want it to glorify Him. And honor him. And you'll say, you know, I, I knew Pat Abendroth before. And I knew how he talked before. Something's happened. Something's changed. What in the world has changed? Okay. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's the one who sealed you. That's verse 30. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Doesn't make any sense to not bear the fruit of the Spirit if He's the one who sealed you for the day of redemption. He's the one who regenerated you. John chapter 3. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, desire to hurt people. How about that for the life of the church, where the church sometimes is where we have the most malice, the most slander, the most clamoring, the most of these things, and it seems to be more prevalent in the life of the church than anywhere else. I'm not saying churches don't struggle. Don't get me wrong. We're not glorified. But maybe, 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 just maybe, it's because we live in the church as if there is no Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, except for unbelievers. I, I know that I can at least conceptually get you to get along with somebody else. At least conceptually. If you understand that you deserve hell and condemnation, and so do they, you've been forgiven, therefore you have a basis to forgive them. I was just talking with someone after first service and, and the person was saying, you know, a good friend of mine lied to me and, and they're a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm having a hard time. What do I do? I said, I don't know for sure what to do. You should pray for wisdom. I said, because they said, I'm not sure I'm ready to go do things with them right now. I said, maybe you shouldn't. There's freedom being a Christian. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Pray for wisdom. I said, but I will tell you that you have a foundation and a basis for forgiving them and you do need to forgive them. And the person said, I understand that. I understand that. But see, apart from what you know to be true about who you were, chapter 2, and who Christ is and what He did for you, you can say things like, I will never forgive. You can say things like, I will not forgive. But no Christian in their right mind says this. Because we've been forgiven so much, we can forgive. Okay, ending, last verse. It's a great way to end in what we've seen here. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If we could only just get this, if we can only just get this, we will have a really, really good church life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for ministry. Thank you for men and women and boys and girls around the world who have come to know what it means to be forgiven. May we know much about our sins so that we can know much about our Savior to know that our trespasses, our violations against your holy law will never be held against us if we are in Christ. Continue, continue to impress upon us the goodness of salvation in Christ. And may it be so by the power of the Spirit that the men and women and boys and girls who are here who are Christians would talk differently, think differently, act differently that we would walk in a manner that is complementary to what is true for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.